Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. John Michael McGrath here. Uh, breaking news caught up with us over the weekend, and at the time of the recording, the story continues to unfold. Uh, you're going to hear Steve and I discuss both the QP education worker strike and Premier Ford's privilege case in today's episode. The decision in Ford's privilege hearing arrived a bit sooner than expected, with the Ontario government succeeding in asserting the privilege not to testify for Premier Ford and Deputy Premier Sylvia Jones. That was expected, and Steve and I get into why in today's ep. On the labor front, uh, on Monday morning, the Premier held a Queen's Park press conference where he offered to repeal Bill 28 and the use of the notwithstanding clause if QP workers return to the classroom. This comes as schools across Ontario are closed to in-class learning, and at least one publicly available poll shows that more parents blame the government than QP. As I record this update, things are still moving quickly, so we'll have more to talk about next week. In the meantime, here's the rest of the pod. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, QP workers stage an illegal strike, defying efforts by the government to legislate them back to work. A federal court hears whether Premier Ford needs to answer the call to testify at the Emergencies Act inquiry only days from now. And it is Constituency Week for MPPs, meaning they're in their ridings, not at the legislature. A chance for us to check out one bill that's coming down the pipeline. It's Tuesday, November 8th, 2022, so let's get to it. And how are you doing, partner? Actually, thanks for asking. Actually, this has been not a bad week for yours truly. This week in the last few days, uh, the culmination, I guess, of two years of work on a little side project I've been working on. Now, this is not meant to humiliate you, but it's just, it's just a fact-finding effort here. What year were you born again? Uh, I was born in 1981, and I am not humiliated by that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I should be humiliated that I'm that much older than you. 1981. Okay. Well, when you were three years old, I was at a leadership convention in Ottawa covering the return to public life of one John Napier Turner, who became the 17th Prime Minister of Canada. He had, JMM, he had one of the truly Shakespearean careers in Canadian politics. I mean, it was huge highs. It was depressingly low lows. He died two years and two months ago, and the book I have spent the last two years working on is now finally out. It's called John Turner, An Intimate Biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister. So I will confess to being, what's the expression? A little chuffed about all of that right now. And uh, how many books have you now written? I think that's number eight. Wow. Which is a nice little thing to do in your spare time between midnight and 6 a.m. over the last yeah, 20 years. all of your ample spare time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. No, good fun. Good fun. Glad I did them. But uh, I, I will say for the record right now, this will be my last book. Oh, really? And I have said that for the record seven times before this. So <laughs> You're an unreliable narrator even of your own books. I think that's probably right. Yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> uh, so we got a question from one of our listeners. We do like to uh, uh, address our listener emails when we can. Uh, this comes from Marlon Papel uh, this week, who wrote in with a question on how we characterized the uh, stronger mayor powers that the province has conferred on uh, the mayors of Ottawa and Toronto. Marlon writes... 
Your words. John Tory, who got almost 345,000 votes last week, gets one vote on council, while most councillors got around 10,000 votes apiece, but also get one vote on council. Does not paint a true picture of voting. A mayor, in this case Tory, was voted for by the whole city, while councillors are voted for only by the people in their ward. How would it be fair if 10,000 people in a ward did not want what the mayor wanted, but would have to take it because the mayor has one vote and that vote says it is done? Mm. So if I'm reading this right, Marlon is saying we've argued that it's fair for the mayor to be stronger via a a veto in this case, uh, one of the powers that the province has now uh, expanded, uh, because mayoral candidates get more votes than councillors. Marlon seems to think that's a a flawed argument because the uh, pool mayoral candidates receive votes from is is much larger, vastly different. Everyone in the city votes on uh, the mayor, but only wards vote for the councillors. So, Steve? What say you? Well, first of all, Marlon, I'm not arguing for this new law at all. Uh, I mean, my job is not to argue on behalf of or against this. I'm really trying to point out the arguments that were used by the provincial government in bringing this forward. And I guess the point that I was trying to make wasn't just about the numbers, but that sometimes... Look, this is a reality. There are citywide priorities that rise above the level of local councillors, and if a city needs to build a new subway, for example, that can be very big and disruptive to to lots of parts of the city, and local councillors can have objections to that, of course, but it might nevertheless be beneficial for the city as a whole. And since the mayor is elected across the city as a whole, they can bring that perspective to the debate. Uh, It's not the only way to solve that problem, but it is the one that the Tories have chosen. So again, not advocating for or against, trying to explain what I think is some of the thinking behind Premier Doug Ford's imposition of this new act. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, the, the government has said that, uh, you know, part of their uh, desire to do this is because mayors do have uh, a different perspective than uh, the, the local councillors. Uh, it's worth saying that some cities in Ontario don't use ward councillors. They uh, use councils that are elected at large from the city as a whole. Historically, uh, the city of Toronto once had a, a board of control, which was a, a number of citywide politicians uh, elected uh, to, to help manage affairs at city council. So, you know, there are other ways to uh, solve the problem. But, you know, as we say, this is the one that the government has landed on. Yeah. As you are talking right now, I'm just going into Mr. Google and trying to find out. Ah, there we go. So Doug Ford in the 2022 election in Etobicoke North got almost 14,000 votes. That's about as many votes as a typical city councillor in the city of Toronto gets. John Tory had 345,000 votes. Now, obviously, the mayor of Toronto doesn't have more power than the premier of Ontario. But it is, you know, I I think it's one of those factors you got to take into account in as much as the mayor of Toronto and the mayor of Ottawa, for that matter, are, are two of the very few politicians in 444 municipalities across the province who really have these massive mandates because the area within which they get their votes is massive. Doug Ford only gets votes in Etobicoke North directly. Now, of course, the whole, I guess he gets to claim credit for all the PC party votes. But uh, I mean, whether we like it or not, the fact is the mayor of Toronto gets far, far more votes than the premier of Ontario does in his little constituency. So for what it's worth, there you go. So thanks for writing, Marlon. And if any of our other listeners out there have questions or comments about the program or other content we're publishing, just write us on politics at TVO.org. That's the email address on politics at TVO.org. And if it's a really great question like that one just was, we'll answer it. Now, on to issue one. 
When will the Premier and his ministers stop lying about the damage they're doing to the education system? Order. The member will withdraw his unparliamentary comment. I will not withdraw. Mr. Tabbins, you are named. You must leave the chamber for the day. It was a particularly feisty official opposition that showed up to question period last week as one by one, several members were ejected from the official proceedings, actually 16 in total. So let's go through this, JMM, starting with the charming terminology the speaker used. He did not say, like an umpire at a baseball game, you are out of here. He said, you are named. Why do they say that? Uh, well, there's one thing in common with baseball that there, there is kind of a three strikes rule. When an MPP is misbehaving, and this is a, a misbehaving not in my judgment or your judgment, but in, in the, according to the rules of the House, uh, there are usually three steps. Uh, first, the Speaker calls them to order, basically like, hey, I see what you're doing there, cut it out. Uh, secondly, if the uh, uh, MPP uh, does not bring themselves into order, uh, the, the, they will be formally warned. And that's a bit more serious. That's the speaker saying, like, in the voice of, a, you know, every frustrated dad in a car anywhere, you know, don't make me turn this car around and we will go right home. The final step really is being named. The, the MPP is named and that is the speaker saying to the sergeant at arms, it is time to escort this MPP from the chamber. They then do not get to return to the chamber for a day. And uh, of course, that clip was Peter Tabbins being escorted out of the chamber. Uh, he was back in the chamber the next day. Can I just say uh, parenthetically here how deeply impressed I am that you used a baseball analogy to make a political point, which makes me think I'm finally starting to have a positive influence on you. Can I, I say was that? I going to say, you're, you're, you're rubbing off on me. There we go. There we go. Okay. Back to the real issue now. The multiple ejections. You don't get named unless you break the rules and refuse to apologize. And that's what happened here. What did this group of 16 do? Most of the 16 were uh, disciplined by the speaker for disrupting debate. Uh, yelling across the aisle at Tory MPPs uh, who were trying to defend the government's usage of uh, the notwithstanding clause in Bill 28. Uh, this is, of course, the legislation that the government has uh, brought forward to uh, force QP workers back to uh, work or, or to end a strike. Uh, but the NDP were uh, being quite loud, quite uh, uh, disruptive. Uh, it is against the rules of the chamber to be so uh, loud or or create a ruckus that it, it actually disrupts the flow of debate. Um, and then, you know, that clip we played of Peter Tabbins, uh, that was just him straight up calling uh, the premier and uh, the minister of education liars. Ooh, can't do that. Uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, the, the NDP uh, did allege some... Uh, specific falsehoods, uh, let's say, uh, you know, saying that, the, you know, when the government uh, says it will do whatever it takes to keep students in class, the NDP alleges that, you know, that is not true. The government has not exhausted its options, uh, that uh, the government is not supporting its frontline workers, that uh, they are not uh, maintaining a, 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 the most generous uh, compensation they can. But if you or I defame somebody, uh, or are accused of defaming somebody, I should say, if we are telling the truth, that is an absolute defense. You cannot be successfully sued for, for defamation if you are telling the truth. Uh, that is not the rule in the House. You saw, or rather you heard uh, uh, Tabin say that his, his remarks were true and correct. That doesn't matter in this case. To use unparliamentary language, truth is no defense, and calling another member a liar is, is about as cut and dried a case 
of uh, what is called unparliamentary language as there is. Because it is so cut and dried, I think we can fairly say that Peter Tabins knew exactly what he was doing. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, these guys have been around and they know that when they call somebody a liar, you're asking for trouble. You do have to remember as well that these MPPs refer to each other as honorable members. The assumption underlying that label is that they are all there to do a job, of course, from their different vantage points, and that they all accept that they'll have differences of opinion, but will never tell a lie. Now, at the root of the whole dispute is something, JMM, you just referred to it, Bill 28, the Keeping Students in Class Act. What is it about that act that the opposition members find so egregious? Well, let's just uh, you know state the obvious here that this is uh, back-to-work legislation. The NDP generally do not support uh, ending strikes with back-to-work legislation. Uh, this uh, bill does that in spades. It uh, forces uh, QP workers back to legislation and imposes a new uh, collective bargaining agreement on them. Uh, it's a, a very detailed schedule attached to the bill that, that spells out in precise wording what the new contract will be. So that is obviously not something the NDP were ever going to support. But the even uh, more uh, outrageous thing to the opposition here is that the government is using the notwithstanding clause, uh, section 33 of the Charter of Rights, uh, to uh, override the union's uh, collective bargaining agreement, or collective bargaining rights, rather, and the right to strike. Uh, The Supreme Court has held that collective bargaining rights and the right to strike are both protected by the Charter. The government is using the notwithstanding clause to uh, apply Bill 28 notwithstanding uh, their union rights. So uh, Bill 28 was passed by the House uh, on Thursday afternoon. It was a vote of 74 to 34. Uh, You could probably guess that the government voted for the bill and the opposition parties did not. Uh, You know, it moved through the House uh, very quickly. It was first introduced on Monday. That was October 31st. It received third reading and uh, royal assent on November 3rd. So only, you know, four days between introduction and final passage. Uh, This is not normal for how bills usually make their way through the House. That was fast, wasn't it? Yeah, that was fast, but it's also not uh, unusual for back-to-work legislation to move this quickly through the legislature. Do you know, when I see a vote of 74 to 34, you know the first thing that pops into my head? What do you think? The first thing I think of, that adds up to 108. Right. There's 124 members in that legislature, so a bunch of them didn't show up for the vote. And I always wonder if there's a story there. Uh, right. Well, you know, of course, while we're talking about parliamentary language, if I could just ha- have a slight digression here, uh, one of the things you are not allowed to say in the legislature is you're not supposed to remark on the uh, absence or presence of a member. The precedent is that uh, MPPs have lots of different responsibilities and it's considered uh, unkind and, and uh, rude to, to remark on whether somebody is there or not. You and I are not MPPs, however, and uh, are not disciplined by those rules. And so I can point out that the premier was not in his seat for the third reading vote. Now, the premier is a busy man, and I will certainly stipulate that the bill was going to pass whether he was there or not. Precisely. Uh, but uh, more than a few people noted uh, his absence. And it makes you curious as to whether or not there were members of the opposition who might have been there but weren't there because maybe they don't secretly disapprove of this. Or there might have been government members who should have been there but weren't there because they didn't want to vote for back-to-work legislation. Who knows? In either side of the aisle, government or opposition, sometimes people are in tight writings and you never know how these issues are necessarily going to um, fall out. Indeed. Now, we've had some feedback to all of this. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association released their statement. And what do they have to say about all that? 
Just to quote from their statement, they said, what happened today at Queen's Park is horrifying. An important piece of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is being shredded before our very eyes. It is the rights of workers in Ontario that have been assaulted today through Bill 28 is the rights of some practicing Muslims, Jews, and Sikhs in Quebec that continue to be assaulted through Bill 21. And make no mistake that this will continue unless we fight tooth and nail. Everyone's rights are at stake when the notwithstanding clause is used. And of course, uh, Bill 21 in Quebec is the uh, law passed by the go government that uh, uh, bars the wearing of certain religious icons uh, in the public service. There's one more interesting little wrinkle on this story that I think we ought to uh, bring to our listeners' attention. And Mitzi Hunter brought it up. She's a former education minister when the Liberals were in power under Kathleen Wynne, represents Scarborough Guildwood in the legislature. And she asked the Speaker to do something quite unusual. She asked the Speaker to find the government of Ontario in contempt of the legislature. And it all has to do with respecting the role of the legislature in the democratic process, because governments are not allowed to treat bills, in other words, prospective laws that haven't been passed by the legislature, as a fait accompli, as if it's a done deal, the fix is in. This violates the spirit of democracy in the assembly. And Mitzi Hunter alleged that the government, in fact, did just that with Bill 28. So you want to give us some of the details here about how she alleges that the government basically said the fix is in and there's nothing you can do about this? There were a number of public statements by uh, primarily the Minister of Education, is, is who we're talking about, Stephen Lecce, uh, where he used words like, the government is going to pass uh, this bill. And uh, of course, the government does not pass the bill. The legislature passes the bill. The M- MPPs of both the government and opposition parties vote on the bill. And if a majority of them support it, then the bill passes. And, you know, it's it's a linguistic point, but it's one that MPPs understandably take very seriously. The government does not get to treat the legislature like it is a, a rubber stamp. Even if they had as a majority, they can't do that. Absolutely. And, you know, and there's other ways that this shows up. You know, um, the government will sometimes give reporters uh, embargoed press releases that tell us what the government is announcing before a press conference starts, for example. One of the things, it is very rare. It has happened on occasion, but it is very rare to get uh, an advance copy of a piece of legislation because the principle is that MPPs are supposed to be the first ones who see a bill, not reporters, not the government's allies. So we might get a leaked uh, or or an embargoed uh, press release. I very rarely get uh, an early look at a piece of legislation that the government is proposing. And when a minister stands to introduce a bill for first reading in the legislature, they almost always say, this bill if passed by the legislature, would da-da-da-da-da-da. And they didn't do that this time. So uh, that's why Mitzi Hunter made her challenge to the speaker. And you might think, well, the speaker is really, I mean, the speaker's, the speaker, of course, acts like a neutral arbiter over question period and legislative proceedings, but the speaker's an elected MPP. And this speaker is actually a progressive conservative MPP who's actually been a conservative MPP for, I don't know what, 32 years now? I think he got elected in 1990. Uh, This is Ted Arnott. So you think to yourself, is there any way in the world that a conservative of 32 years elected MPP who is now speaker might find the government in contempt and therefore determine that the government may actually pull Bill 28? And the answer is, drumroll please, it's actually happened before. And I take you back, young John Michael, to 25 years ago when you were in high school, I suppose. Toronto, it's six different boroughs. Toronto, North York, Scarborough, Etobicoke, East York, York, they were all being amalgamated into a megacity. 
And the Minister of Municipal Affairs of the day put out a pamphlet basically saying, here's what's going to happen. And in doing so, basically did what you just suggested they shouldn't do. They treated this thing like it was a done deal. This pamphlet treated it like it was a done deal. And as a result, somebody challenged that pamphlet and the government as being in contempt of the legislature and the conservative speaker, Chris Stockwell, said, yes, you are right. And the government was found in contempt. Now, they fixed their mistake. They went back to the drawing board. They you know, reintroduced the bill. Toronto became a megacity anyway. But for a time, Mike Harris's government sustained a real black eye on that occasion because people could look at them and say, you are acting contemptuously. And governments, you know, they may do tough things, but they don't want to be in, they don't want to be accused of being in contempt. Uh, so that did not happen this time. Uh, Speaker Ted Arnott uh, looked at the issue, uh, said that while, yes, there were clearly some statements that uh, seemed to presume a passage of the bill, there were other uh, statements that did not. And he found that on balance, uh, there was no contempt. You know, it's worth saying that even if the Speaker does find the government in contempt of the House, it is then up to the House to uh, actually impose some consequences with, for example, a vote by MPPs. And then we just get back to a majority of MPPs are, in fact, progressive conservatives, and they are probably not going to vote for really serious penalties, even if a contempt finding uh, is, is upheld. No, in this case, they surely will not vote for any serious consequences. Let's, let's also, and uh, I mean, as long as we're drilling down on this, uh, let's take a minute and just talk about the intention of invoking the notwithstanding clause of the Charter in advance of a court case. I mean, the way this usually works is that if a government gets a a court decision that it doesn't like, it then says, okay, we're invoking the notwithstanding clause. We are setting aside this court decision, and we're going to go do what we wanted to do anyway. This is really new for the province of Ontario in as much as the government is saying, we're not even going to wait for a court decision. We are going to just assume that even if the court decision comes back against us, we're using this clause, and we're telling you so right now. This is new has never happened before. Critics will argue that it goes outside of the democratic guardrails that are in place, that yes, you can do it, but that doesn't mean you should do it. And I think one of the reasons, and JMM, I'd be happy to hear you riff on this, is that the use of the notwithstanding clause is something that's supposed to last for five years, which means at some point before then, presumably the government of the day has to go back to the people in an election, and they get to render their verdict on whether that was an appropriate use of the clause. The public seems not particularly fussed about the use of the notwithstanding clause, as evidenced by the fact that Doug Ford used it in his first term and won a pretty impressive re-elected majority government uh, in the 2022 election. So if there are no political consequences, I guess they conclude, why not use it willy-nilly? Right. We've already mentioned the case of Quebec, where François Legault uh, introduced their own charter-breaching law uh, and and preemptively invoked the notwithstanding clause, uh, and again, handily re-elected with a larger majority, uh, much like Ford was uh, earlier this year. So uh, the the idea that that Prime Minister uh, Pierre Trudeau and the premiers might have had uh, when they brought in the notwithstanding clause that voters would uh, surely uh, punish any politician who who was seen to be using the notwithstanding clause frivolously or, or something like that. It isn't borne out in the evidence yet. But as for why they are doing this, 
uh, I think it is worth mentioning that you know, the the law has changed quite a bit in just the last decade or so. Uh, in 2012, the liberal government of the day under Dalton McGuinty did legislate teachers back to work. They ended up losing the, the eventual court case over that, and it was expensive for the Ontario taxpayer. But uh, between 2012 and now, in 2015, there was a Supreme Court decision uh, regarding a, a Saskatchewan uh, legislation or a piece of law in Saskatchewan about labor rights. And the Supreme Court uh, held that not just that there were collective bargaining rights protected by the charter, but specifically held that the right to strike is a charter protected right. And that is a change in the facts. Uh, the liberals would then go on to negotiate uh, less, uh, let's say, acrimonious uh, education uh, contracts uh, before Kathleen Wynne's government was defeated in 2018. And then the next round of contracts happened to come due for the Ford government uh, right at the time that uh, the province was shutting down uh, due to COVID. So that, that whole collective bargaining process got short-circuited, and we never got a test of what the Ford government would have to do uh, back then in order to keep teachers and students in classrooms. So this is really the first time in Doug Ford's tenure that uh, the desire of the conservative government to restrain spending on education is coming up against the charter protections that the Supreme Court has found. And they have just decided that, you know, since the courts have held that there are collective bargaining rights and, and there is a right to strike, they're just going to say, all right, fine, the Supreme Court has had its say and here's ours. Well, he was months away from the election campaign. And at the end of the day, when, when people are hurting, uh, when, when people are suffering, uh, you know, businesses are closing. Uh, some businesses still haven't recovered from that or, and, and went right out of business. There's people who suffered medical harm. You know, it was a, a major crisis in Ottawa, and that's when leaders are supposed to stand up and, and you know, do the things that need to be done regardless of the political calculation. That was Paul Champ, uh, a lawyer representing the downtown Ottawa residents who are currently a party at the Emergencies Act inquiry uh, in the nation's capital. Uh, those were some of the remarks Champ made to Post Media about why his clients want to see Ford testify at the inquiry. Uh, thanks to Zoom Court, I was able to listen in on the proceedings. Uh, but uh, of course, in case our listeners are curious, we won't be sharing any clips because it's actually illegal to record or broadcast court proceedings in this case. Is that right? Why would that be? There are times where a court will allow televised hearings or recorded hearings. Uh, I think of, for example, when the Ontario Court of Appeals heard the uh, the government's uh, carbon tax challenge, they allowed the CBC to televise and record and broadcast those proceedings. As a general rule, though, uh, I have very rarely found Canadian courts uh, willing to televise or, or allow recordings of these things, except, of course, for the Supreme Court. Exactly. The Supreme Court of Canada allows it, but uh, almost nobody else. Well, OK, uh, lucky for us, you were watching this. So uh, what jumped out at you? You know, we've talked about this uh, before uh, very briefly. You know, the premier and uh, Deputy Premier Sylvia Jones are claiming uh, the MPP's privilege to not have to testify in civil proceedings. And uh, the inquiry wants Ford and Jones to show up. You know, it's it's a really interesting case in the sense that a, a, a lot of these arguments were like arguments about the arguments. And I won't get into all of those details. Uh, but if I could sort of grossly shorten uh, what I spent today watching, the inquiry needed 
for the court to accept that while there might be a privilege, it doesn't apply in this case. And while uh, Justice Fothergill didn't make his decision public on the day of the hearing, there were moments where he sort of said, uh, yeah, you know what, I, I accept that argument. Or, uh, well, that, that one I have more questions about. And he tended to accept the arguments that the government was making uh, about how well-established the privilege is. That's interesting. And they don't usually tip their hand that way. No, it was interesting. It was odd in the sense that, for example, at one point he said, actually, this privilege is really clear and it's really well-established in the precedent. Uh, But of course, there is uh, a deadline here, a ticking clock. Uh, The government wants this disposed of before November 10th, uh, because that is the day that uh, the inquiry has, in fact, summoned Ford to Ottawa to uh, give evidence. Uh, Father Gill said that the absolute worst-case scenario he uh, imagined would be he would uh, give his order of the case and then give his reasons to follow. Excellent. Every once in a while, when Ontario politics uh, seems to be dominated by just a couple of big stories, uh, maybe something like the last week, uh, our producer likes to poke around for upcoming bills and see if there is anything notable to look out for. And uh, one private member's bill, that is uh, a bill submitted by an MPP who is not uh, in the government, not in cabinet, caught our eye. The bill pertains to granting permission for linking natural gas to homes and businesses. 67% of Ontario homes use natural gas to heat those homes. Uh, and of course, that we're not just talking about home heating. Some homes have you know, gas barbecues, fireplaces, that kind of thing. Perhaps uh, worth mentioning here that in a majority parliament, which is what we have now in Ontario, it's a very solid progressive conservative majority, Opposition private members' bills rarely see the light of day. If it's a good idea, the government will simply steal the idea and pass the bill with its own majority and take the credit. And, of course, if they think it's a bad idea, they'll just make sure it doesn't pass. Nevertheless, it is somewhat interesting to see what the parties may be trying to signal as priorities with their private members' bills. And besides, we are legislative nerds, so this is very on-brand for us. Yes, indeed. Uh, rookie Liberal MPP Ted Shu from Kingston and the Islands, who was also formerly a federal MP, uh, he has introduced a private member's bill that is interesting to me because it's a bit of a, a new front in climate policy, which we'll get into. Uh, but it also marks what I think is a, a bit of a departure from what the Liberals supported when they were last in power. I spoke with Ted Shu last week about his new private member's bill, and here's that conversation. MPP Ted Shu, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's good to be with you. Why don't you tell our listeners, what does uh, your private member's bill do? Sure. I think the best way to explain is to tell a story about how this, uh, why this bill, the idea for the bill, came to my attention. In, in 2022, uh, Kingston, the city of Kingston's uh, city council, was asked uh, to approve $2.4 million of uh, spending of public money on a natural gas connection, uh, which included a connection to uh, a condo, a new condo uh, uh, complex that uh, sat on a pier that stuck out into Lake Ontario. And one of the councillors asked, well, so is there any alternative to spending this $2.4 million on a new natural gas connection? And the reason why city council was asked to approve this funding is because the city of Kingston owns Utilities Kingston. It's the natural gas utility. And when the councillor asked this question, the city staff uh, came back at a later meeting and they said, well, 
you have no choice. You have to spend this $2.4 million because according to the Ontario Energy Board Act, a distributor of natural gas has a monopoly and in return has an obligation to connect anybody who asks for a connection. Uh, and that obligation is independent of how economic it is. And the city staff actually said, you know, it's going to take about 24 years of uh, supplying gas uh, through this new uh, connection in order to pay back that $2.4 million. And so it occurred to me that what the staff said is you have no choice. The Ontario Energy Board Act says you have to make this connection. But at the same time, the city of Kingston is trying to think about ways that it could do something about climate change. And we know that as far as residences go, it feels like we're sleepwalking towards more and more natural gas connections. And instead, we should be thinking about the options. And what my bill does is it simply says that in the section of the Ontario Energy Board Act, where it says that distributors have an obligation to make natural gas connections, it simply says this in no way prevents municipalities from imposing conditions on new residential natural gas connections in order to uh, comply with a bylaw on greenhouse gas emissions. I just want to uh, stop for a moment to tell our listeners that they might be hearing uh, car horns honking in the background. And that is, of course, because you're catching some of the uh, gatherings and, and, and protests about the passage of Bill 28 uh, at the yes. legislature. There is a very a vigorous uh, a picket line outside, and we've had hundreds and hundreds, maybe probably over a thousand, uh, maybe 2000 people who have uh, come to this area. To get back to your bill, though, would it be fair to say, I mean, you mentioned sleepwalking into more natural gas expansion, and right. you see this as climate policy. That's why this is important, why this is necessary. Yeah, it's if we just keep using natural gas without thinking about the alternatives, we're going to run into trouble. I did want to ask, you know, this is a bit before your time at Queen's Park, but the last time they were in power, the Liberal Party had a policy to expand natural gas connections into rural areas of the province in particular. And, uh, of course, the uh, Progressive Conservative government uh, inherited that policy and, and has, um, if anything, been more enthusiastic. Uh, but but I, I do wonder if you see a, a conflict between that prior liberal policy and your private member's bill or, or, or how, you, how you resolve that tension. What I would say is that time has passed and we have much less time to deal with climate change. I'm not saying that we should ban natural gas. There may be cases where that is uh, the best thing to do. But what I'm saying is that time has passed the earth is warming, uh, and natural gas was always meant to be a transition source of energy. Now, as I mentioned, the Tories are uh, quite enthusiastic about natural gas infrastructure. They have a, a large majority in the legislature. Do you have any reason to be optimistic about your bill passing? It is a private member's bill from an opposition member, but I had a private member's bill when I was a federal member of parliament. And that private member's bill was to bring back the long-form census, to provide the data that was crucial, for example, for public health policy during the pandemic. That bill did not pass. 
but it attracted a lot of attention. And in fact, the very first action that the new federal government in 2015, the very first action that that cabinet took when they got sworn in was to reinstate the long-form census. So maybe my bill will pass, maybe it won't. But what I can do is, is talk about uh, the idea that we shouldn't, as I put it earlier, we shouldn't continue sleepwalking towards more and more natural gas connections. Municipalities should have tools that they can use to prod developers and home buyers into thinking about what else they could do besides just relying on natural gas for every new house that gets that gets built. Have any progressive conservatives uh, spoken to you about your bill? Anybody indicated that they will uh, support it? Well, in question period a couple of days ago, it, the uh, there was a, one of those softball questions that was lobbed at uh, Todd Smith, the energy minister, and he criticized the bill. But the way he criticized it was he, he said, well, on the surface, it looks like the liberals want to get rid of natural gas. So he didn't criticize the bill from the point of view of having read it and thinking about what the what it was all about. Uh, so I think it will just take some time for me to talk to the conservative members and even the energy minister and say, this is why why it's in your interest to consider supporting the bill. Uh, but I think uh, it's one thing to try to convince politicians from another party. It's another thing to go out into the into the community to get some stakeholders on board, to do a social media campaign, to generate some interest. And that's what I did for my private member's bill on the census. If you'll pardon me a little bit of mischief perhaps here, I do have to of ask, uh, Ted, are, are you going to run for the Ontario Liberal leadership? <laughs> I am exploring uh, very actively uh, a run for the leadership, putting together a team, talking to lots of people, seeing how much support there is out there. So when the race is called, uh, there's a good chance I'll be there. Okay, well, the party, I believe, is going to make that decision uh, early next year, and uh, we will be watching. MPP Ted Shu, thank you so much for joining us on the On Poly podcast today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I love your podcast and I'm very happy to be on it. There's our John Michael with Ted Chu, the member of provincial parliament for Kingston and the Islands. And that is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. A reminder to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to them at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, we discuss whether Prime Minister Trudeau's condemnation of Ford's use of the notwithstanding clause could ever have any real teeth. Spoiler alert, almost certainly not. <laughs> right on. Any feedback or questions for us, we're always happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. And if it's really good, maybe we'll feature you off the top of the podcast, as has become our custom. And if you really want to go above and beyond, may we suggest emailing us a recording. Use your voice note or voice memo app. Put your voice into it and uh, we'll put your voice on. Uh, otherwise, of course, you can still get us the old-fashioned way. Write us via email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lam. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Carla Lucetta, Nikki Ashworth, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>